The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Let's see, Psalm 67 says, To the chief musician on a stringed instrument, or on stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. God be merciful to us and bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase. God, our own God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. And all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Okay, we're moving right along in Jonah. Today we're in Jonah chapter 2. We're going to finish the chapter. It's uh, 2 verses 5 through 10. And this is entitled, this, the, the title of this sermon sums up the entire premise of the Bible. Salvation is of the Lord. All right. If you can get that premise, you've pretty much got the Bible figured out. Man has fallen. We need to be redeemed. The Lord redeems. Okay. Let's see here. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed, Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. A question for you before we get started. Why should we be encouraged by the story of Jonah and the great fish? It's because Jonah was down in the mouth, but it came out all right. <laughs> We're going to finish chapter two today. This sermon completely finishes our second chapter of Jonah. It's wonderful. I mean, the first chapter took, uh, what, three or four sermons, and this one will take two, and I think chapter three will be two, and uh, two in chapter four as well. But what an exciting adventure so far. It's just been amazing. When looking back on all that's happened and what is coming today, we can see a pattern repeated many times since then. Jonah was called, he fled, he was punished, and he was restored. If we take a careful look at our own Christian lives, we can probably find many times where this same pattern has been played out in us. And so let's not be too hard on either Jonah or ourselves as we read his story. We generally follow a course on whatever motivates us. I didn't really pursue an education until I was 36 years old. And the reason why I did so is because I was motivated towards a desire. I wanted to become a preacher. And the pastor of the church at the time told me he would not ordain me unless I got a degree. And that's what motivated me. And since then, I followed that course because I'm still motivated by it. 
Jonah previously followed one course because he was motivated in a certain direction. He, like a dove, will change his course and follow another direction because he is properly motivated to make the change. And so we should, even before looking at today's verses, think on what motivates the Lord. Really, think about it. He set out on a course of action because he was motivated to do so. God was under no obligation to save anyone. However, if he was to save anyone, we saw this in Thursday's Bible study, his perfect attributes necessitated that he follow a certain course of action in order to accomplish the task. That course of action could only end in one way, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Believe it or not, he chose this path because he was motivated to do so. God willingly chose to create man and then to pursue a path which led to uniting with his creation and dying on a cross in order to redeem the man that he had created. This is true motivation. This is really true motivation. And that is what is pictured in all of the rest of the verses of Jonah today. If that doesn't humble you, I mean, if you are unmoved by the fact that God did what he did because of his love for you, then I can't imagine what could ever stir your soul. Jesus Christ is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world because God was motivated to redeem the man he knew. He knew would rebel from him. And the entire process of this redemption is centered on one thing and on one thing alone, that precious lamb. Jesus Christ was waiting in the wings from the first utterance of creation to accomplish his mission. Fallen man must be saved, and only a man who is not fallen could do the saving. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 118. It's the 14th verse. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The psalmist said that the Lord is his strength and his song. That is fantabulous. He rejoices in the Lord, which is a great thing to do. But he also says that the Lord has become his salvation. It's a play on words because the word salvation is a variant of the name Jesus, which means salvation. We were being given a clue as to what God would do. He would become our Jesus, our salvation. Jonah will tell us the same thing today as well. He was a goner and the Lord rescued him. When there was no hope at all, the Lord stepped in and saved the day. If you think you somehow merit God's favor or that he is under some type of an obligation to save you, think again. The Lord did not need to send the fish to save Jonah, but once he did, nothing could prevent him from safely reaching the shore. The symbolism of the fish is an integral part of the plan of the Lord, and the motivation of the Lord is what made it possible. Personally, I can't wait to see what it all means. Just what is being pictured in these final six verses of Jonah chapter 2? Well, we're not going to find out unless we get started. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have just two thoughts for you today. The first is death and resurrection. It's verses 5 through 8. Verse 5, the water surrounded me even to my soul. Afafuni mayim ad nafesh, compassed about me waters to soul. Jonah 2.5 and a portion of 2.6 provides us with more vivid descriptions of the danger and the distress which he faced. These will then be followed again by a note of deliverance. 
The word translated here as surrounded is a completely different one than that which was used in verse 3. There it was the word sabav, a much more common word. Here it is the word afaf. This is the last of five times that the word afaf is used in the Bible. It means to surround or to encompass. Whereas the waves of verse 3 surrounded Jonah swirling about him, the intensity of his situation has now increased greatly. The waters themselves have hold of him and fully surround him to his very soul. He is, as the old saying relays, going down for the third time. His end is at hand. To draw in a breath would have meant his final end because the waters had fully encompassed him. The precious air which sustains life was no longer to be found. And in just one, just one inhale, it would mean the termination of his life. Being confined to such a torture is the most terrifying of sensation. If an animal is caught, for example, it would chew off its own leg in order to get free. In 2003, a guy named Aaron Ralston was climbing in the canyons of Utah, and he got so stuck in his arm that he couldn't free himself. After five days of trying every other possible solution, he carved his own epitaph into the sandstone. But then, in desperation, he cut off his own arm in order to free himself. Eventually, he was rescued and he was taken for medical care. But Jonah didn't have a knife and there was no helicopter flying overhead. At this point, he was probably considering his own obituary. Interestingly, the first time that the word afaf was used was in 2 Samuel, where David used the word metaphorically. But it is in a parallel way to Jonah's words of this chapter. In David's words, afaf and sabav are reversed to show the plight of his situation, which, though similar to Jonah, was not identical. Here's what it says in 2 Samuel 22. When the waves surrounded me, afaf, the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me, sabav, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered his ears. These words of David are then used again in the 18th Psalm. It is with certainty that Jonah used the words of the psalm to describe his own pitiful plight, which literally came to pass, and which was similar to that which David had faced. Along with that plight of David, he records another time where he faced such troubles, and which he metaphorically uses to describe his plight. Jonah certainly referred to these words as well. Here's the 69th Psalm. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. Because these words were written by David, they can thus be attributed to the work of Christ. The waters which surrounded are typical of the world of chaos hemming him in. That they came even to his soul is reflective of the very termination of his life as it ebbed away on the cross. Verse 5 continues, The deep closed around me. Tehom yesovaveni. Abyss closed around me. The Tehom is the great deep or abyss. It was first seen in Genesis 1 verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the Tehom, the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Jonah's words are an indication that he was no longer going down for the third time, but that he had gone down and was not coming up again. He had succumbed to the inevitable and had given up any chance of rising to the surface for another breath. The words here are not intended to say that he sank to the bottom of the great deep. Such a depth would have crushed him. Rather, he began the descent and the waters of the abyss simply closed around him. 
There was no longer any connection to the surface. If we were watching a movie, this would be where the stretched out hand quietly slipped under the waters and disappeared. Verse 5 continues, Weeds were wrapped around my head. Suf chabush le roshi. End is bound to my head. To be daring here, I'm going to be at variance with every single translation of scripture available and all scholars' commentaries as well. According to Charlie's literal translation of the Bible, which is being compiled and which will be on sale at marked up prices someday, (laughs) the verse does not say that weeds were wrapped around Jonah's head. It says that his end is bound to his head, meaning that he has met his end. It is a phrase that any Hebrew-speaking person would understand. First, the word translated as weeds is suf. It is the same word used in Exodus when speaking of Yam Suf or the Red Sea. The word Suf is translated by many scholars and many translations as reed because those scholars call it the Sea of Reeds, implying that it is a freshwater lake that the Israelites passed over and not the Red Sea. It's incorrect. The word Suf also carries the meaning end. And so the verse is not speaking of reed, but end. The Red Sea is the ending of the land of Israel, and so it is the sea of the ending, or the Red Sea, not the Sea of Reeds. The New Testament bears out the name Red Sea. All of those liberal scholars trying to say that it was a freshwater marsh are incorrect. Therefore, the term reed being translated here in Jonah as weeds, meaning seaweeds, is a way, way unnecessary stretch of the Hebrew, especially because there are no reeds in the Mediterranean Sea. Secondly, chabush, or wrapped, comes from a primitive root, which means to wrap firmly, especially as a turban or a compress or a saddle. Thus, a Hebrew phrase is being given to us. The end, meaning death, has wrapped tightly to the head of Jonah. He had expired. This clause then further defines the previous clause. Taken together, they confirm that Jonah claims that he had died. As I said, this is at variance with all translations and scholarly comments, But I knew something was wrong with that when they translated it as weeds from the word suf. And so I proposed it to my Hebrew-speaking friend, Sergio. And without any hesitation at all, he said that any native speaker would immediately understand the symbolism of this phrase. Death had bound itself to the man. Score one point in the growing bottle of points for Charlie's literal translation of the Bible. Even the Greek translation of this verse clearly shows that it is not speaking of seaweeds. This was translated two, three hundred years before Christ, and they did not translate it because they knew that was incorrect. The Greek translation says, went down my head. If taken symbolically of the cross, as it's intended to be, this would be the moment where Christ uttered his final words and then exhaled, thus confirming my translation. Here's what it says in Luke 23. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowing his head, gave up his spirit. Verse 6, I went down to the moorings of the mountains. Le harim yarati. To the cuttings, mountains, I descended. The word translated as moorings or cuttings here is ketsev. This is the third and last time that it will be seen in scripture. It indicates something cut or shaped. And so Jonah is saying that he descended to the place where the mountains are shaped. His word here indicate that his lifeless body slipped down into the depths. However, this has to be taken metaphorically. He has already acknowledged that he was dead. A dead person does not know where his body has descended to. 
And so he has made the poetic note that he had descended as far as a body could descend, even to where the mountains were cut out. His words then translate directly to the tomb of Christ, which was cut from the rock and into which his body was laid. Verse 6 continues, The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. The earth, her bars behind me to the vanishing point. Here Jonah speaks of himself as a prisoner in a dungeon. He is closed in with no chance of releasing himself from his predicament. His death could now not only be not undone, but the prospect of corruption lay ahead. This then translates into the burial of Jesus, as is reflected in the words of Matthew 27, where it says this, When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. For Jonah, it seemed that all hope was lost. For the world who did not understand who Jesus truly was, the same is true. But the passage of time reveals the glory of the Lord's handiwork. Verse 6 continues, Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, and yet brought up from corruption my life. Jonah's cry of deliverance now resounds through the cavernous belly of the great fish. As we saw in the last sermon, most, if not all, scholars attribute the words that we have been looking at here as occurring during the time in the belly of the fish. This is wholly inaccurate. The words are those prayed from the belly of the fish afterwards and are referring to his time in the sea before the fish swallowed him. The fish is not the place of death, but rather his mode of delivery from death. Jonah died in the midst of the sea of chaos. In the midst of the sea of chaotic humanity is where Christ died. We are being asked to look for and find Christ, not a fishtail. Now that the sea has claimed his life, now that the chaos of humanity has taken Christ's life, only now are the words to be attributed to those from within the fish's belly. Jonah, upon being swallowed by the fish, realized that he had been brought up from the inevitable corruption which would follow his death in the sea. The fish was ordained by God to save him. And likewise, the power of God was used to restore Christ Jesus to life. These words of Jonah are reflective of the words of David from Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive that I should not go down to the pit. The words of this psalm were cited by Peter in Acts chapter 2 to prove that the resurrected Christ was who David was referring to. Word by word here, and in complete and exacting detail, Jonah is being used as a type of Christ. Verse 6 continues, O Lord my God, Jehovah Elohai, Jehovah my God. In the introduction to Jonah's prayer in verse 1, it says that he prayed to Jehovah. His words reflect what occurred and the triumph which resulted. His words now reflect the confidence he possessed in Jehovah, the self-existent and all-powerful creator. He is the one Jonah had called out to, and he is the one who responded and saved him. Therefore, Jonah acknowledges that he is my God. Likewise, the Messianic Psalms say the same thing as they relate to Christ. He called out to his God, the eternal God from whom he issued, and his God responded. As the man Jesus, the Lord is his God. Verse 7, when my soul fainted within me, Behitatef alay nafshi, had covered itself within my soul. 
Jonah's prayer now returns to the period outside of the fish once again. Though he is praying from within the fish, he is yet again recalling his ordeal before being rescued. This is the 16th and the last time that the word ataf is found in scripture. It comes from a primitive root meaning to shroud, as in to clothe. From this comes the idea of darkness, and thus to be faint or overwhelmed. In the case of Jonah, he is remembering the very moment that his soul was dying away in him. He was covered in darkness, and there he had met his end. His words are again a look into the future work of Christ. From the 16th Psalm and speaking of Jesus, we read the parallel thought of what occurred in his burial. Here's what it says in Psalm 16, 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christ's soul was shrouded in death. But, like Jonah, there was relief from that place of darkness at the very moment of his death. Verse 7 continues, I remembered the Lord. Et Yehovah Zakharti, Yehovah I remembered. It is a marvelous inversion of the Hebrew here. Had covered itself within my soul, Yehovah I remembered. As his life ebbed away, his dying thoughts were those of the Lord. It is, in essence, the triumph of the spirit over the flesh and the place where faith reaches beyond reason. Though the words cannot be condensed into a shorter thought without destroying the integrity of the passage, Jonah's words here are reflective of Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21. The words point to Jesus' time on the cross. From the first words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To his words of victory in verse 21, You have answered me. Jonah's words briefly sum up that torturous time that Jesus faced. And yet which ended with his remembering his God even while his life ebbed away. Verse 7 continues, And my prayer went up to you, Vatavo elecha tefilati, and came in unto you my prayer. Again, though these words are being prayed from the fish's belly, they are words which reflect Jonah's state while in the open waters. There in his dying gasps, he remembered the Lord, and his final breaths issued forth a prayer which rose to the Lord even to the place where he dwells. It is almost as if the prayer itself is personified. It leaves his mind, takes flight on a path to its intended destination, and there it stands before its intended recipient. Verse 7 continues, Into your holy temple, El Hekal Kadshecha, into temple your holy. As a prophet of the Lord, and one who had come to realize that there was no place he could flee from, to get away from the presence of the Lord, Jonah is certainly not speaking of the temple in Jerusalem. Rather, he is referring to the heavenly place where the Lord dwells in all of his splendor. Jonah's prayers rose through the waters and through the realms of matter, even into the spiritual dwelling place of the Lord. In the foxhole of battle, when her finances are lost, when a loved one is in a hospital bed clinging to life, then, it is then that we remember the Lord. As Jonah's descent continued and his life ebbed away, he remembered the Lord and said his prayer, and it was then that the Lord received his words, even in his holy temple. Why? Why do we wait so long to call on him? How much more pleased will the Lord be with us when we say prayers and praises when things are going well? In both Testaments of the Bible, we see that God actually treats, as Bob noted at the beginning of our service today, this is a sacrifice. And he accepts those prayers as a sweet savor. 
as it says in Hebrews, therefore by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. He considers it a sacrifice when we praise him. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Verse eight, those who regard worthless idols, meshamarim havleshav, those who observe vanities lying. The translation of the word hevel as idols in this version is a bit unfortunate. It is true that all idols are vanities, but not all vanities are idols. The word hevel signifies vapor or breath. Thus, it is that without any value or which is meaningless. To pursue breath is futile and to chase the wind is a foolish venture. Jonah is reflecting on himself and on his own previous condition. He was not bowing down to idols. Rather, he was running from the true God. He is thinking of his own actions, but after contemplating them, his words then indicate anything which is vain. It could be predictions, absurd fears, rejecting the word of the Lord, or refusing to adhere to the word of the Lord. This is what Moses had in mind when he spoke the words to Israel of the song of Moses at Horeb. Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 32, 32. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is no God. They have exasperated me with their vanities, that same word, and I will move them to jealousy with that which is not a people. With a foolish nation will I provoke them to anger. Jonah now realizes that his actions were vain, but he had come to his senses. He now warns those who follow him that there are consequences for vain pursuits. Such people who regard vanities, verse 8 continues, forsake their own mercy. Chastam ya'asovu. Benefactor they forsake. The word chesed means loving kindness or favor or mercy and the like. In Psalm 144, verse 2, David calls the Lord my loving kindness. In other words, the Lord is the source and the fountain of mercy. Therefore, the New King James Version did a very good job in this verse of capitalizing the word mercy. It says capital M E R C Y there. They have directed the words not to what is bestowed but to the one who bestows. Jonah's words look to what happens when a person follows after vanities. In such pursuit, they forsake he who provides from the fountain. This is exactly what Jonah had done. And now his words call out for others to follow the wisdom that he had obtained. Pursuing that which is vain sets up a wall between us and God because we forsake the one who created the thing that we're pursuing, whether gold, silver, sex, drugs, fame, fortune, Our attention is caught up in vanity, and the Lord leaves our hearts and our minds. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with this this precept here. They first ask a question, what is the chief end of man? And then they answer the question, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We cannot glorify God if we chase after or grant glory to something less than God. And we cannot enjoy him if we spend our time pursuing idols. The Apostle John closes his first epistle with these words, Little children, keep yourself from idols. Amen. Let us follow this advice and not forsake our source of mercy. My heart is glad and my glory rejoices, O my soul. My flesh also will rest in hope with no interruption. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, of this I am sure. In your presence is fullness of joy, a wondrous path I trod. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, and so I put my trust in you, O my God. You have brought me up from the pit and set me in a broad place. You have set me on high, and my soul has found rest. 
here in your presence and in the light of your face, here in the land where your saints are eternally blessed. Our second thought today is a simple truth. It's verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Va'ani bekol toda es lach. And I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. This is the last time that the word toda or thanksgiving, is seen in the Old Testament. It essentially means an extension of the hand. Thus, it is as if an offering is being sent out. However, it is said to be with the voice, the coal of thanksgiving. Therefore, the voice of thanksgiving is considered as an acceptable offering to God. And so it is further explained as a sacrifice. As I said earlier, in the Bible, praise is called a sacrifice, and that is what Jonah was referring to here. It is something we can all do, and it costs us absolutely nothing. But God accepts it as a sacrifice because it is something that most people will never, never do. Even believers fail to take the time to simply glorify Him. We have all kinds of time for cell phones and TV and movies and family and friends, but we just don't take a few minutes every day to stop and to contemplate the goodness of the Lord and then give Him praise. In the future, let's make a commitment to praise Him in everything that we do. Let our every breath and our every action be of praise and worship to Him. Verse 9 continues, I will pay what I have vowed. These words come as a promise to what he just said, and they include any vows not recorded here as well. He is offered to make a sacrifice with the voice of thanksgiving, and now he confirms that he will follow through with that promise. In Deuteronomy, the people were told quite directly, verse Deuteronomy 23, 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it will be a sin to you. This sentiment is repeated quite a few other times in various ways. But Jonah's words are not just for us to see a man who has come to his senses. They reflect the sentiment of the 22nd Psalm as well. This is Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. The author of Hebrews then uses that same verse and ties it directly into the oath of the Lord to God the Father. The Lord had promised that after his ordeal on the cross, he would follow through with the vow that he had made. Like Jonah, who is a type of Christ, and like the Lord, who we are to emulate, if we're going to commit to something, we need to remember to follow through with it. I will pay what I have vowed. This is what the Bible expects. When we promise, we are to live by our promises. In the 15th Psalm, the Bible says that a person who swears to his hurt shall not be moved. Surely God will reward such faithfulness. Verse 9 continues, salvation is of the Lord. Yeshua Ta Le Yehovah, salvation to Yehovah. Jonah's words are a realization, a confession, and a praise all tied up into one. He was dead, but now alive. He thought there was no hope, and yet he was saved. And where his lips were seemingly silenced forever, they were now able to sing out to Yehovah with a resounding voice. But more than just words of acknowledgement from Jonah, they sum up the entire theme of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, salvation is of the Lord. Man is condemned. The Lord has fixed the problem. The process is wholly his, and we are merely the recipients of what he offers. In considering the words, they tell us that he is the source of salvation. He is the bestower of it, and he provides the means by which it will occur. The noun Yeshua is used 77 times in the Old Testament. 
It specifically means salvation. And the form of it that Jonah uses here is intensive, Yeshua Ta. In essence, it means mighty salvation. When converted into a proper noun, it is Yeshua, the Hebrew name of Jesus. Thus, we are given an insight into the work of the Lord here in Jonah 2, verse 9. Yehovah the Father is the source of salvation, the plan and the form to come. Yehovah the Son is the one who came to execute that plan. Yehovah the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that salvation to those who are saved. The Lord Yehovah is the source, means, and bestower of man's salvation. Yeshua, or Jesus, is the key to it coming about. Acts 4, verse 12, sums up the thought quite well. Here Peter said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The name is Yeshua, and no other. What is veiled in the old is now revealed in the new. What was concealed is now open for us to see. It is Jesus from whom comes all, all salvation. Verse 10 finishes with these words. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Vayomer Yehovah ladag et Yonah el hayabasha. And spoke Yehovah to fish, and vomited Jonah onto the dry. The account is to be taken literally. The Lord gave the command, and the fish followed through with the orders as given. He was spewed out of the belly and onto the dry land. It is the last use of the word kol, or vomit, in the Old Testament. But... It is not the last time that vomit will be referred to. It is also probably the least offensive and even most glorious use of the word vomit in recorded history. The symbolism, though, is what is important. First, there was a command from the Lord. This was followed by an action. The fish symbolizes the means of delivery, not the state of death. Jonah had died in the waters and was caught up into the belly of the fish where he then made his prayer. Christ was cast among the great sea of sinful people, symbolized by the chaos of the ocean. There he died for the sins of the world. However, his delivery was already prepared based on his sinless life pictured by the fish. His sinless state is what delivered him from the ordeal. It is what rescued him from inevitable corruption. Peter mentioned this in Acts chapter 2. Here's what he says. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. As the fish is the means of Jonah's delivery, and as Christ is the means of salvation, a picture is formed in the words, it vomited Jonah onto the dry. Christ was, can we say, spewed out of the grave. It simply could not stomach him. The grave is the devourer of that which is unclean from sin. He was spewed out of the fish, but the fish lives in the sea. Therefore, he was spewed out of the sea, the place of sin, chaos, and death, and onto the dry land. The fish for Jonah, Christ for the sinless man Jesus, both merely provided safety from the sea. This passage was anticipating the symbol of Christianity that half of us have on the back of our car. Ichthus, that's right, the sign of the fish. It is an acrostic. Isos Christos Theo Ios Soter. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. His sinless perfection is what is seen in the fish. The vomiting of Jonah onto the dry land pictures his triumph over the sea of chaos. 
Again, it is explained by Peter in Acts chapter 2 with these words, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And so from the place of chaos and death, he was restored to a place of stability, harmony, and assurance, the dry land. Right on the very first page of the Bible, a distinction was made between the waters and the dry land. When God made the Yabasha, or dry land, by separating it from the waters, it was proclaimed good. In the New Testament, the disciples were told that they would be fishers of men. Christ was the first to be delivered from the chaos of the seas onto the dry land, meaning the place of safety. Now those who follow him are fished out of the sea and brought to that same place of safety. The entire episode was orchestrated by God based on Jonah's rebellion to show us a picture of the world of fallen man being rescued by the perfect man, Christ. The difference between Jonah and Christ is that Jonah died on account of his own sin, something common to himself and to his people. He was delivered from that death by the Lord. On the other hand, Christ died for the sins of his people, which he willingly took upon himself. But he died as a member of his people the nation of Israel, and under the law which was given to them. In his death, he died for sin and was delivered by God in order to save people from all nations. This is more than a simple fish tale, but a grand epic story of the workings of God in Christ. And if you've never taken the time to simply ponder this thought that Jesus came and says, don't worry, I'll make you fishers of men. It's all being pictured right here. What Jesus came to do was to fish us out of the sea of chaos the sea of death, the sea of confusion, which is humanity striving against God. And he says, I will bring you to a place that is dry and sound and has harmony. And he did that through his own shed blood. He came into the stream of time knowing that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. He knew that every person that ever came before him and every person that his eyes beheld as he walked around was already condemned. They're on their way to hell without him. And he came to fix that and to pull us out of that pit, and to say, if you will simply trust me, I will give you new life. I'll give you assurance and surety. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what the Bible is showing us in this story, this quaint little story that people read and say, how cute, and they focus on the whale, and they miss all, or the fish, they miss all of the symbolism that God is giving us word by word. Every single word is giving us a picture of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us and just wait until we get to the next two chapters, how marvelous it is as it continues to unfold and what God is trying to tell us. But it's all focused on Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, what Israel couldn't do and what you and I certainly can't do, that he would give his life up on the cross of Calvary, shed his blood to cover our sins, and all he asks for is faith. If you simply believe, I'm in this sea and I can see it, I look out at the world around me and it's just, it's terrible, and I want something better than what this world offers He'll give it to you by faith in what he has done. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you came out of the grave to prove it. I received Jesus and it is done. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise and that can never, never, never be taken away. You can lose your joy in the process though. Those of you who are saved, who have called on Jesus, you can lose your joy if you don't pursue the Lord. So get into his word every day. Attend Bible studies wherever you're at. Meditate on the Lord. Praise him when you're doing things. Thank him for the beautiful flower and the wonderful white puffy cloud. Thank him for Florida that we get to live in, whereas these people have to go up to uh, Minnesota here shortly. And mm -hmm. our brother here is going off to England. And we're so blessed to be here in Florida. Thank him for everything. 
And he can thank the Lord for being back with his family in England. You know, we can, we, there's always something to thank the Lord for. In all ways and in all circumstances, let's do that. But first, get right with the Lord by calling on Jesus, okay? Our closing verse today comes from Revelation 7. It's the 10th verse. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Next week is Jonah 3, 1 through 4. He's heading to Nineveh, not to Arizona. It's entitled, This is the Sign of Jonah. That'll be your seventh Jonah sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean rages against you and is ready to swallow you up, he can send delivery to you in the most remarkable of ways. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I've got a poem based on these six verses, and we'll be done. Take the Lord's Supper. It's entitled, Salvation is of the Lord. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep around me closed. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I had no control. My end was near, I supposed. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, I shall praise you, ceasing never. When my soul fainted within me, away it flew. I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. There you received my word. Those who regard worthless idols, much is at stake. Surely their own mercy they forsake. But I will sacrifice to you this I convey with the voice of thanksgiving, with my spoken word. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish. He did command and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. God has shown us in his precious word that being obstinate toward him can only harm us. Instead, we need to bow to our glorious Lord, giving honor and respect to Christ Jesus. Help us in this, Lord, this we implore. Our hearts are so easily turned away. Give us of your spirit to overflowing and even more so that we will bring honor to you each and every day. And to you, we will give all of our highest praise. And to you, we shall look for eternal days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wonderful pictures of Christ and the assurance that we have that these things that are drawn out of this story, which can only point to Christ, show us that we are on the right path, that everything about our faith is sure, it is true, and we don't need to worry if we're in the wrong church or in the wrong religion or whatever. We have Christ and we know that it is true because every single pattern that we've seen for hundreds of sermons again and again and again keeps pointing us to him. Thank you for that assurance. We need nothing more but to see your glorious face as we stand in your presence in heaven. And may that day be soon. Amen.